You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a paper from Antiquity and the Anthropocene. This online workshop re-examined ancient perceptions of nature, power and power over nature to better understand our current environmental crisis. The workshop, which was organised by Matthew Mandich and Giacomo Savani, took place on the 26th of February 2021. This episode features a paper by Gil Gambash from the University of Haifa. His lecture, The Collapse of the Late Antique Negev Society, Environmental Aspects, was introduced by Giacomo Savani from University College Dublin. A video of this presentation, including the slides used by the speaker, is available on the UCD Humanities Institute's YouTube channel. So we're moving on to our fourth and final session, session four, Environment and Collapse. And I'm going to introduce our first speaker, Gil Gambash. Um, Gil is an ancient historian with an expertise on the Mediterranean Sea in antiquity. Until 2019, he was the chair of the Department of Maritime Civilization and the director of the Recanati Institute for Maritime Studies at the University of Haifa. He is the co-founder and director of the Haifa Center for Mediterranean History. In 2020, he spent a year at the Institute of Classical Studies in London as a library visiting professor working on ecological perspective on Mediterranean societies. His recent publications focus on the late antique Negev and the reason for its rapid rise and fall. And this is what we're going to talk about today uh, to you. Thank you, Giacomo. Thank you, Matthew, uh, for organizing such a, an event, both relevant and special, I would say. I really wanted to come down to Dublin and meet all of uh, you uh, last spring, I think it was supposed to be. Uh, but perhaps one advantage is that this work, which is still pretty much uh, in progress, um, has advanced since I submitted my abstract. Uh, and perhaps today I can present uh, a bit more uh, of a mature uh, idea with a bit more confidence. And if I uh, could, I perhaps would have resubmitted uh, the title exactly as the same title, only with a question mark uh, in the end. Located uh, between the Red Sea uh, and the Mediterranean and bordering on the Sinai Peninsula and the Jordan Valley, the Negev Desert has been home to semi-nomadic societies since time immemorial. Patterns of sedentary settlement appeared in the Nabataean period towards the second century BC and continued to develop during the time of the Nabataean kingdom and its incorporation into the Roman Empire in the first and second centuries C. Under the Byzantine Empire, the entire area flourished and reached an unprecedented economic peak, ending sometime after the Muslim conquest and never experienced again since. The strong connective capacity of this area, bridging between the Red Sea and the Mediterranean, and by implication between East and West, 
has generated a dominant modern view of the ancient Negev as a junction or crossroad of civilizations. Its aridity and challenging climate have created, on the other hand, yet another commanding modern perspective, focusing on elements of local innovation and self-consistency, and generally highlighting the area's insularity. But hardly any populated area is ever just a bridge or a junction. The rich written and material record, which represents the micro-region since the time sedentary settlements appeared and developed in the area, should allow for a far more detailed evaluation of the connectivity of the Negev throughout late antiquity. Supplementing this record, the project crisis on the margins of the Byzantine Empire adds information from Negev sites hitherto left untouched, particularly landfills and refuse mounds in the midst of settlements and on their outskirts. The initial synthesis points uh, towards a Mediterranean orientation so far little appreciated. The prosperity of the six main towns, Elusa, Rehobot, Nisana, Subeta, Oboda, and Mampsis, and of the numerous rural settlements in the area remains impressive to scholars today for its suddenness and longevity, as well indeed as for the challenging climate and landscape conditions in which it emerged. The markers of this prosperity are numerous and include intensified urbanization, development in architectural styles, innovative agricultural methods based on runoff water, abundant cultivation of grapes, as well as olives, wheat, and barley, the emergence of local production centers, and the generally sophisticated material culture. The symptoms of the rapid descent of the Negev are also familiar and include a demographic decrease accompanied by the desertion of urban neighborhoods and ultimately whole settlements and a general economic slowdown. While these and other clear indicators have been noticed and studied in their immediate local context, the crucial turning point from prosperity to decline remains insufficiently explained and therefore hotly debated. Beyond the known symptoms and the ultimate result, much remains open for discussion, particularly the reasons for the decline and its actual timing. Focusing on the questions asked in this workshop and session dedicated to environment and collapse, we should concentrate on the nature of the changed circumstances which no longer allowed the negative society to thrive or even to survive, and on the place of environmental factors in the process. But before focusing on those, the wider context of the Negev's prosperity has to be pointed out and highlighted. Various aspects in our written and material sources, mostly concerned with economic routine, collectively suggest that under certain circumstances, perhaps best represented in the Byzantine period, the area of the Southern Levantine coast and its hinterland could be defined as a Mediterranean micro-region in the Horden Persellian sense of the term, identified by the nature of the commercial connectivity. This model, it will be remembered, I hope, defines the general regime in which ancient Mediterranean communities function as one of economic risk, which necessitates constant preparation towards the ever imminent seven slim years. This preparation 
is realized by diversification in produce, the storage of surplus, and the redistribution of this surplus among other Mediterranean communities according to demand. The main platform on which this mechanism relies is one of enhanced connectivity, mostly maritime in nature, in a region where topographical fragmentation does not allow for easy terrestrial access across long distances. We may therefore also claim that it is the proximity to the sea that would have made the location more central and therefore potentially more successful economically, and that remoteness from the coast may have equaled economic marginality. The sudden blossom of the Negev cities in the Byzantine period, and the no less sudden decline towards the end of that period, may benefit from an integrated reading of the Negev reality that would be connected to the routine of the adjacent coastal emporia as part of a single economic unit or a microregion. Observing the landscape of the microregion at issue, it should become immediately clear that local hubs of culture and economy held in their power the choice of whether or not to plug into the Mediterranean network. The infrastructure had always been there, established and maintained to support that branch of the spice route, which connected Isla to Gaza. It should be clear that mere mobility is not the issue here, nor strict trade contacts, nor even such focused cultural influences as religious conversions instigated by missionaries. The question is one of much deeper identification with a full range of attributes, symbols, ideas, and fashions that we sometimes describe as an identity and may be termed here a Mediterranean identity. This larger narrative clearly affected in turn various consumption habits of Negev society itself. A telling example may be found in the local culinary preferences as these have been uncovered recently through the excavation of the refuse mounds of Negev urban centers. Significantly, the organic material included the numerous remains of shellfish and bones of parrotfish, whose remote provenance in the Red Sea, the Nile, and the Mediterranean highlights the effort involved in their importation. Byzantine Negev society was connected to the Mediterranean world via numerous other threads, not all of them fully appreciated yet. Christianity would have been familiar in the area from the earliest stages of its expansion before rapid processes of urbanization prompted the building of churches and the nomination of local bishops. Saint Hilarion, credited by Jerome with the Christianization of Elusa, spearheaded in the Negev the development of desert monasticism, almost simultaneously with the Egyptian emergence of the movement. To a large extent, this would be the model of monasticism imported to the rest of the Mediterranean basin shortly thereafter through the agency of the numerous pilgrims beginning to frequent Palestine, who made the point of visiting the Judean and Negev deserts before or after the trip to Jerusalem. Also arriving from the Mediterranean large quantities was marble penetrating the Southern Levant already in the second century and now imported to the Negev, whether through the demand produced by the public building projects of the prospering towns, the churches, and monasteries built next to them, or by private elite residents, same ones who served at their tables, the parrotfish and the shellfish. The sudden emergence 
and rapid development of a prosperous, sophisticated society in the Negev desert, which produced a sustainable balance between urban centers and agricultural hinterland, deserves an explanation. The key must have been found in the generation of spare capital available for expenditure at the hands of public institutions and wealthy individuals. Of all the components comprising the Byzantine negative economy, the one demonstrating the most prominence appears to have been the wine industry. During the fifth to seventh centuries, Gaza wine was famous throughout the Mediterranean and was lauded by numerous writers as one of the best wines in the region. Frequent references by poets, travelers, and historians demonstrate its popularity, likely ascribable, at least in part, to the lively pilgrim movement passing through Palestine and to the growing significance of the Eucharist. The wine was packaged in typical Gazetian jar, named after its general area of production and usage around the city of Gaza. And it was then shipped as Gaza wine to destinations all around the Mediterranean and beyond, as far as France, Spain, and Britain. It is not a coincidence that the fame of the wine coincided with the rise of the Negev, as evidence from the area suggests that the local wine industry had come to produce significant surpluses of wine aimed for export. While the Gaza wine received its name from the port city from which it was transported, and some wine presses were discovered in Gaza's immediate vicinity, large-scale primary production aimed for export would have taken place mostly in the hinterland. The contribution of the Negev to such an economy is gradually becoming appreciated. The first and most essential key for adaptation to agricultural needs was the obtainment of the means necessary for primary production in the form of crop cultivation, which would be sufficient to support the needs of the local population. To overcome the aridity of the area, an elaborate runoff wadi cultivation system was developed, which was combined with a chain of cisterns built already by the Nabataeans. However, an economy based on balanced self-consistency with no surpluses does not offer an insurance against those bad years, which occurred regularly in arid microregions. It also does not supply a plausible explanation for the wealth and prosperity soon gained by the new negative society and the prompt development of conspicuous consumption habits briefly described above. The prominent solution to these tensions gradually reveals itself, uh, reveals itself to have existed in the elaborate Negev wine industry, of which we know today more than ever before. While it has always been known that part of the Negev agricultural efforts was dedicated to viticulture, the cumulative effect of the corpus of evidence, much of it coming from recent surveys and excavations, suggests the development of a significant wine industry producing enough surplus for exploitation under the brand name of the Gaza wine. Numerous written sources from reports by Christian travelers to legal and commercial documents preserved on papyri refer to the vine cultivation and, vine, and wine industry of the Negev, offering descriptions of the nature, success, and occasional struggles. Hagiographic descriptions of saints and monks inhabiting the area or passing through it document numerous vineyards and their owners. Hilarion himself is often ascribed 
described as visiting monasteries and monks and the vineyards in the desert around Elusa. His timing for visiting these uh, vineyards was coordinated with the agricultural cycle of farmers and with the important dates marked on local calendars aligned with the dominant Gaza calendar. The adoption of the Gaza calendar, as well as additional attributes such as Gazan measurement standards, all imply a significant economic and cultural relationship between Gaza and the Negev. Archaeological finds obtained in recent excavations have produced numerous grape seeds, which comprise more than 10% of all fruit remains coming from pigeon towers in the area. The presence of uh, vine pollen and twigs proves that grapes were not imported to the area from elsewhere, but grown locally. And from the early to the middle Byzantine period, the presence of grape seeds found in the middens of Elusa and Subeta rose from 13% to 24% of all fruit remains, an increase which correlates with the evidence available for the growing circulation of the Gaza wine across the Mediterranean during the same period. Large wine presses are gradually being discovered in numerous negative settlements. The presses are all designed similarly, containing compartments for the storing of grape and wine, treading floors with one or two screw presses, and receiving vats to collect the mast. They are all of considerable dimensions and were built for the purpose of industrial scale production. As we've seen, the wine produced in the negative presses was sought, uh, stored for transportation in amphorae especially designed and produced for the purpose of shipment of goods on the back of camels, as well as on board ships. These amphorae were known to contemporaries as the Gaza jars, and their uh, name, the Gazitia, appears frequently on papyri related to the trade in the area and beyond. Unsurprisingly, they comprise a high percentage of 50 to 70% of all ceramic assemblages recently ex excavated in the area. This is a, quite a, a new um, uh, research. This domination signifies the lively trade which persisted between the Negev and the port of Gaza and their strong affiliation to the wine industry corroborates the evidence above, suggesting that wine was exported from the Negev in significant quantities. So let us now turn to examine the environmental pressures in which this elaborate system functioned during late antiquity, starting with climate change. The debate about climate change, <clears throat> the debate about climate change during late antiquity and its societal effects is still very much in progress and ranges from one extremity locating our period within a 250 years long devastating little ice age to another extremity, emphasizing the Mediterranean basin's regular climatic, climatic variability. Even this latter most critical approach towards late antique temperature change admits widespread Northern hemispheric cooling occurring between the mid 530s and the 570s. Interestingly, Relevant Southern Levantine proxies do not indicate that temperatures in the area dropped significantly during this period. However, the indirect consequences of such a regional climate change, brief as it might have been, may well have impacted 
the fragile negative economy by generating related detrimental phenomena. One indirect consequence to which we will return shortly could have been witnessed in accelerated dune mobilization. Another related aspect would be humidity and precipitation levels. A crucial factor for the arid environment of the Negev and its reliance upon minimum levels of annual rainfall for the maintenance of the elaborate agricultural systems. However, available data from a Sorek cave stalagmite and Dead Sea water levels do not offer solutions for the questions we ask about the Negev. This is the Sorek cave, as close as it gets to the Negev. And these are the results. They indicate with varying degrees of resolution that rainfall levels in the area were significantly lower between the years 100 and 700 CE, leading to drier climate and the desiccation of the Southern Levant. This is a far longer period of alleged challenging climate. In broad regional terms, it encapsulates the end of the Roman climate optimum, the following three or four centuries, which are defined by Kyle Harper as an unstable transitional period, and the late antique Little Ice Age itself, short or long. In the local perspective relevant to this paper, this long period spans both the rise and fall of the negative society, suggesting that development and prosperity were achieved even if the climate in the Levant was dry. Another issue to consider is the Justinianic plague towards the middle of the sixth century. Historical sources provide some vivid descriptions of the effects of the pandemic on urban and rural communities in the Eastern Mediterranean. Procopius, for example, reports that the daily number of deceased in Constantinople reached around 10,000 people. Um, and John of Ephesus, who traveled through Syria and Palestine in 542, in the middle of the pandemic, described abandoned villages whose inhabitants perished altogether with houses and way stations occupied only by the dead. However, these descriptions are not in accordance with archeological findings and other sources of data, and the effect of the plague on settlement and societies has been debated in recent scholarship. Research efforts were invested in the identification of the pathogen of Yersinia pestis in mortuary archeology span across Europe with only sporadic positive results so far. A survey of mass burial in the Mediterranean presents only a few cases in which a direct connection is established. In spite of extensive excavations in Byzantine Palestine and Jordan, which included hundreds of sites from this period, no significant indications for the effects of plague on local populations has been found to date. One final local stressor, often ignored, was the mobile sand dunes located on the fringe of the large uh, less plains of the Northwest Negev, local settlements were increasingly affected by a major event of sand dunes mobilization, starting towards the end of the sixth century. The event was the largest of its kind documented for the Holocene and is likely to have been intensified if not instigated by the preceding population boom itself. Talk about the Anthropocene. Another contributive factor would have been the late antique cold event, the ice age, which would have increased windiness and the intensity of winter storms in the Sinai Negev area, encouraging dune deposition. 
Early in the sixth century, Procopius of Gaza dramatically captures early apprehensions of such a process in a letter written to a friend named Jerome. There will be a day when you will see a Lusa again and you will whip at the sand being shifted away and the vines naked to their roots. Towards the end of the sixth century, the anonymous pilgrim of uh, Piacenza suggestively describes Elusa as located at the head of the desert that extends to Sinai. You can see Elusa here and the dunes traveling from Sinai inward. I would also like to draw your attention here uh, to the fact that Elusa is only one of the desert settlements affected by the dune, whereas others like Memphis, Sobota, Obada, and Nisana maybe you can see it here better, are less affected. So this is also not a direct reason for the decline of the entire negative civilization. Drawing to conclusion, climate change, plague, dune mobilization, and probably other environmental and uh, stressors not considered here, no doubt would have affected the fragile economy of the negative. But for a resilient society, which emerged within the, damage, the demanding circumstances of the area and the period, they need not have led necessarily to collapse. War followed in the early seventh century, first with the Sasanian invasion and then with the Islamic conquest. But also these events have been shown to have had no direct violent impact on the continuity of the Negev society. The main weakness of the system did not lie so much in unstable environmental or political factors, as it did in its economic reliance upon universal demand for its main product, the wine. The rise to prosperity of the negative settlements aligned perfectly with a significant rise in demand for Eastern foodstuffs in the Western part of the Mediterranean, starting around 400 and persisting through the fifth century. Italy, North Africa, Southern Gaul and Spain all demonstrate through ceramic analysis, the sharp rise in demand for Eastern goods, leading experts to approach the shift as beginning of a new age. It is the same essential proxy of amphoras, which locates the peak of this rise in demand towards the end of the fifth century and shows a steady decline in Eastern exports to the West during the first half of the sixth century. So the West is now demanding less and the East, especially the fragile East, is declining as a result. And looking again, this slide that uh, summarizes the paradigm that we talked about earlier, we certainly see the production of surpluses in the negative, even during difficult times. However, we have no diversification. And when there is no demand for wine, I think that directly resulted in the decline of the negative civilization. This is all we have time for here. I'm happy to answer some questions. Thank you very much. That was really fantastic, Gil. Uh, round of applause <laughs> for, our, for our speaker. Really, really fascinating stuff. Um, is there any question? You can just write it in the chat as usual. Uh, I have one. I mean, I was really intrigued by the complexity of this settlement, this community. You mentioned elite houses. Uh, obviously conspicuous uh, consumption, widespread farming, especially um, wine production. 
I was wondering, so there is a lot of water involved in, 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 in farming and, and, and I was wondering if there were any other water features in this area, like for instance, fountains or bathhouses, which is my expertise, obviously. So I will be always curious to hear about the kind of use of uh, water, let's say, in this, in this area. Thank you. Right. Uh, I'm not familiar with bathhouses of the level that you are uh, used to, Giacomo. Uh, in the Negev, water is very much a necessity and something to think about all the time. Uh, they do have cisterns, and some of them uh, may be used also for uh, purposes of uh, swimming or bathing. But essentially, you're always thinking about the dry season, and you concentrate your uh, agriculture in the, the wadi areas. And you create uh, channeling systems, which are trying to collect and accumulate. Um, rainfall um, water that would otherwise be spent or wasted. And if usually we have south of Beersheva around 100 millimeters per year, this system as a whole, we imagine, can bring the average for every such system to beyond 200 millimeters per year, which already makes agriculture of this particular sort possible. Is there any quantification at all on production from the area that you have right now? I think that the process of just now discovering gradually all the wine presses makes us uh, realize how little we know about uh, the commercial quantities. Uh, so, um, and perhaps I am also presenting this particular hinterland of the Gaza area with Ascalon next to it as very dominant, but it is not the only supplier of, uh, of demand for the major ports of the Mediterranean. So um, I would be careful at this point not to estimate, uh, even in terms of percentage, how much of what is being shipped out of Gaza is produced in the Negev. But just by counting industrial centers that are familiar to me, from all the excavations carried out in Israel in the last half century, we are looking currently at about 30 to 40 percent uh, of such centers located in the south, in the Negev. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Gil. It sounds like just really great work and a lot more to be found out and discovered there. Yeah, I mean, just lots of good stuff. So I'll definitely going to keep an eye on it going forward. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Antiquity and the Anthropocene. To access more podcasts from the workshop, check out the Humanities Institute's podcast channels on Apple, SoundCloud, and on Spotify.